Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Platforms are part of the essential plumb end for IFAs and mainstream investments, but have lagged in the tax advantage space. Today, we get Dan Rodwell from Growth Invest to discuss the differences between the two markets and how things are developing. We also get him to discuss Cuba, its failure last year, and what Growth Invest are now doing with their customers. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonico.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Dan Rodwell, who is Chief Executive Officer at Growth Invest. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. We've been trying to sort this out for a while, so I'm, gl- I'm glad we finally got you here. As usual, we want to start by getting to know a little bit more about you. So can you tell us how you became involved in platforms? Okay, yes. Um, so at risk of uh, rewinding too far, just to, just to flag, my early career um, was spent um, trading equity derivatives. And, um, and back then, um, I was quite heavily involved in the transfer of trading these products from the open outcry market onto screen-based trading. So that gave me a very early insight as to how technology can um, can transform industries um, for the good of all stakeholders and importantly, the clients. Fast forwarding 17 years, um, we got to a point where I was, um, I was an investor in some EIS products and VCTs um, and a big believer in the benefits of tax efficient and alternative assets for high net worth clients. And um, we wanted to to start and grow a business um, and we wanted to solve a problem. So I looked across the market, you know, there there were some solutions out there for direct-to-consumer platforms. One thing that occurred to us was that um, you know, a good proportion of flows into these assets came from the advised marketplace, although there was scope for much, much wider usage. So we looked at how we could solve a problem in that space. We saw that advisors had adopted the main market platforms pretty much wholesale 15 years earlier. Uh um, And it occurred to us that there was no platform in this space that solved the inefficiencies for tax efficient and alternative investments. So, uh, at that point, um, late in 2016, Growth Invest was born. Yeah, we've been building the business ever since. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned Growth Invest's kind of platform focuses on tax enhanced tax advantage, tax enhanced market, whichever one of these you prefer. You've been through a couple of iterations to get to where you were. So can you maybe talk a little bit about the path that you took to to, to get to where your current platform is? Yes. If I, today, um, we are an advisor platform that specializes in tax-efficient investments. And that's and, funds, uh, not individual companies now? Correct, yes. So it's, it's venture capital trusts, EIS funds, inheritance tax products, business relief-related products, both AIM and asset-backed. And increasingly, um, we're servicing assets for our advisor clients in the private equity, venture capital, and wider private market space. In the early days, when we first came to market, we were trying to promote direct EIS deals to 
the advisor marketplace with the view that you know that um, there, there are less fees involved in in direct investment and and so on and so forth um we very quickly learned so it's kind of like that, a grown-up crowdfunding almost ultimately when we first came to market you know that was the solution w- that we were offering the feedback was you know advisors are very keen to invest in managed products for their own, you know, multiple reasons, including their own compliance and suitability. So over those years, we very quickly pivoted into the the, the managed fund environment to the extent that today um, we have um, a whole of market offering across those products. Okay, so we've got this basic idea of a platform as something. We're just going to focus on platforms generally, I think. I think initially, and we'll we'll get a bit more into growth of specifically. So we've got okay. this idea of a platform as something where you know IFAs know about it because there's lots of lots of these out there, as you say. What problems can platforms solve? Just chance for a little sales pitch. Firstly, to touch on you know the wider main market platform space. Advisors have been using main market platforms or a number of main market platforms for 15, 20 years. It's fundamental to their business. And and what these platforms provide is centralization, the ability to invest, you know, execute business uh, and then receive reporting so that you can manage client portfolios from a, a huge number of product providers. Alongside that, it gives advisors the ability to apply their ongoing charges within one centralized portal and and ultimately main market platforms give advisors all of the efficiencies they need to service their clients adequately and 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 to grow their business so as as you mentioned in in the mainstream market platforms kind of dominate IFA business and in this market they don't why is that what do you think the reasons are so I think first and foremost, the mainstream main market platform space, you know, 15, 20 years ago, a host of platforms came to market and there was a very, very quick um, curve of adoption across a kind of 18, 24 month period. And as you say now, you know, the platforms are absolutely embedded in most advisor businesses. In the tax efficient and wider alternative space, this um it's taken more time. There's, there's a number of reasons. You know, firstly, this is a relatively small part of a client portfolio, um, and and you know, arguably, it is is only suitable for the the upper half of of your client bank. So, and it's also an area that that advisors, it, to some extent, shy away from, lack knowledge, and so on and so forth. So, there there's definitely a lack of engagement with the space, combine that with the fact so, so, that... So do you mean that it's basically IFAs just aren't going to the big platforms and saying, I need this? Is that what you mean? Yes, that's the case. Um, and and I also think that the main market platforms have, have struggled to get development in this space up their priority list. And 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 then it's taken time for people like ourselves and and other entities that are coming into this marketplace to build a solution that that absolutely suits the advisor demand. So so presumably we, from what you say that are there some technical issues in there? I mean, I, I think we've alluded to that this business is more complex from an advice perspective. Is it more complex for, from a platform perspective in terms of building things? 
Yeah, most certainly. You know, in the context of um, a main market platform will sit, it will be a piece of technology that sits on top of technologies that give direct market access, price reporting and, and market data. Now, in the tax efficient and alternative space, there is no third party provider that can provide that for you. And mm -hmm. so platforms like ourselves have had to build that. So for direct market access, we've built straight through processing or digital application into a, a, a very disparate source of product providers. In terms of pricing fees, we've had to build reporting bridges with all of those, you know, and there are hundreds of providers that all have very, very different reporting processes. And then in terms of market data, whilst whilst there clearly is market data across VCT and and AIM, that there, there is a dearth of market data across EIS and 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 some of the more esoteric products. So all of this has needed to be built over the last few years, and and you know at the same time as advisors are getting more comfortable with this space, we believe that. Um, currently and over the next 12 to 18 months you know there is going to be a, an increased adoption of platforms now that the the service is there that we as a platform have uh, have been in the market long enough to demonstrate that we're long-term sustainable and we can demonstrate the benefits of centralizing this process and portfolio reporting rather than going directly to the managers yeah, and, and it seems to me, having spoken one or two managers about this, they are very concerned. Well, not well, maybe concerned is the right way for a phrase for platforms because they see themselves as perhaps being disintermediated, disconnected from their customers. And that is clearly a fear for a lot of these managers who want to own their customers and, and not get that sort of separation. How do you see that playing out? Yes, it's definitely been an issue over recent years. You know, there has been this um, misconception within the provider marketplace that, that, you know, they lose touch, their relationship with the clients. What we have found over recent years is that um, once we become a part of the process and, and the BDMs or the, uh, the fund providers realise that the, their relationship with the advisor and the end client is unaffected, there's just an added efficiency from accessing their products through our platform, uh -huh. um, a lot of those fears go away. Add into that that, that um, in this space, particularly the tax-efficient tax arena, the providers need client data for, for VCT certificates, for EIS forms, and so on and so forth. So actually, you know, they cannot be disintermediated in the same way as they may be with some of the main market platforms because they always have to have that client relationship. Yeah, so, so, so and, and that probably brings back to technology aspects in that it seems to me I'm seeing over the last two or three years, I've seen most managers switch from okay, we've got some sort of electronic thing to now, I would say the majority have some sort of platform. Is there a potential problem here in terms of, you've got the managers creating their own technology platforms, you've got your platform, and the two may or may not speak to each other to a great extent? No, is our view. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the first thing to say is we... We fundamentally believe, and the feedback from our increasing number of advisor clients is that whilst 
it's it's great that the fund providers are, are launching portals and and in in many cases digital applications there's still this requirement to log on to multiple places and send you know send client funds to multiple places so centralizing that is a clear benefit as is the reporting all coming in to one place and then you know output into their back office or or um, whatever may be in terms of the fact that the industry is embracing technology, for us, you know, I think that's a good thing because, we're, you know, it means that if the clients have portals, they probably have APIs built in the back end. So it, it becomes more seamless for us to communicate uh-huh. with those providers and ultimately makes for a better investor and advisor journey in servicing these assets. So, so moving on a little bit into terms of thinking about what you're providing, the services you're providing... How do you see maybe different segments of the market? I mean, you alluded to the difference between VCTs and EIS and, and business relief in terms of complexity and presumably there's different relationships. And, and, and you've got advisors and investors and providers. So you've got sort of all sorts of different parties. How have you managed to sort of develop different things? Think about how you provide products for different segments. How, how, how are you sort of working on getting things better? So ultimately, for a platform to work, there there needs to be a value proposition for both sides. You know, in our case, it's the advisor, the investor and the product provider. We as a business have consistently stayed true to who our client is, and that, that is the advisor. So the bulk of our development and new innovations and, and um, functionalities that we brought out have have been to solve for frictions and, and inefficiencies in for the advisor. Mm-hmm. So are you kind our- of ignoring the individual investor for now, or or is that no, strategically? No, no, no. I, I mean, there are many many benefits to the advisor but ultimately it's the end investor that needs to see the benefit and service mm-hmm. so that's you know that's both from the advisor and their administrators servicing the client better but it's also giving giving the client access to see their um, portfolio of alternative assets and 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 so on and so forth so you know ultimately within our model the client pays the fee so you know the client needs to understand and believe in the value proposition mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Anything that has an extra cost, and my experience of dealing with advisors is that they are reluctant to pay anything extra unless they can really get, really see a clear benefit from it. Uh, I don't know if that's your experience. Absolutely. I mean, you know, ultimately, that's what they're there for, and that's what they're good at. So, um, yes, you you certainly do have to demonstrate value to the advisor and the client for them to um, use your platform. Yeah. And do you think we've really got the, the proposition, right? I mean, we, we'll come on to Cuba in instance. You know, we, you've obviously got uh, another competitor out there in Co-Investor doing something slightly different. Do you feel the market generally has got the, the right thing for advisors there? Because I do wonder if the lack of traction is something about we haven't quite got there yet. So I think there's obviously still more to do. In, in a wider industry context, as you know, Brian, because you've been involved in the EIS marketplace, there's there's a definite requirement for standardization and better transparency around fees and returns and, and the like. From a platform perspective, in the advisor marketplace, I think we have got to a place where 
um, our product offering is broad enough and solves enough efficiencies that it, it really is resonating with advisors. And, and, you know, that's borne out by the fact that we, you know, we're signing lots and lots of small to medium sized advisor firms, but we're also working with the, the largest advisor firms and wealth managers um, in the country. So I think we're getting there. It's it's an ongoing process. We 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 all need to continue to improve. I think you touched upon, you know, co-investor. I, I don't know a huge amount about, about what they're doing, but I know that um, you know they have worked with advisors historically. They've also offered a a service to the fund providers, and I think at the moment they're you know they're championing a, a direct to consumer model, particularly in the private market space. So. You know, from our perspective, we remain true to the fact that we are an advisor platform and and we build technologies and functionalities to try and make life easy for the advisors so that they can, you know, have control, risk management and efficiency around this part of their advice proposition and ultimately grow this area of their business. So one area that a couple of so I've had a couple of advisors on previous episodes of the podcast and who have both mentioned reporting in this segment as an issue. How well do you think you're getting reporting done and do you think there's scope for getting that better in the future? There's always scope to improve. If you look at, I think we have a reporting proposition that is adequate and great in places for some of the most sophisticated advisors in the mm-hmm. country. I touched on the fact that listed assets, you know, VCTs, AIM products, you know, you get overnight fees, that's fine. If you look across the the unquoted part of the market, there is this huge disparity around, you know, reporting timelines, how they report and so on and so forth. As a business, currently, we tie to the reporting processes of each individual fund. You know, so it may be that in a given product, you know, reporting is quarterly or biannually in some cases. So there are definitely improvements to be made there. And, you know, there's definitely improvements from a business perspective in the efficiencies of, of how we integrate with each different manager. But, um, yeah, there's definitely more to do. And I touched on the fact that particularly the EIS market, you know, needs a bit of standardization and, and needs to be, we need some performance data in the marketplace so that advisors can really opine on that. Um, and, and, you know, that's a market-wide um, requirement that we want to be at the forefront of, of, of trying to drive. Yeah, yeah. The, the, there's an issue on quantity and quality, I think, for EIS because the rule changes means the track record for a lot of managers are, are, not, are not as we would like but yeah getting the data i know from the reporting i get is it's variable in its delivery shall we say i i, I can imagine doing it at scale would be very hard doing it at scale seems to be a problem it, you know and, and one of the concerns that one of people mark you said you're that you're here and you're going to remain here i think we're conscious that the three big platforms of you know various things of focus of ifas they're not being profitable we've recently seen cuba sort of fall over and we'll come back to that shortly how far short are you of the scale you need to be profitable and sustainable we're getting there as you say we'll come back to cuba in a second i definitely believe that to move out of being deemed subscale um in in our particular 
niche sector, you need to have a broad proposition. We, as a platform, as a primary target, are looking at what we believe is a legacy asset pool of 50 billion in, in across tax efficient investments. We believe that, you know, over the coming years, we, we can make a reasonable dent in accessing a lot of those assets. If you if you take that in the context of VCTs, there's there's 10 billion in, in legacy holdings and there is a very high surprisingly high percentage of these holdings that are still held with paper share certificates. Um, and that, that, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, so yeah, one, one um, thing that I I surprised me when I first looked at the VCT market was when you look at, you've got this five-year holding time and, and, and most VCTs do buy back. So I assumed after five years, most investors would sell their shares, buy something new. Actually, the proportion of buybacks is incredibly small. You know, you sort of low single-digit percentages for most funds. So yeah, there must be people who've been in there for decades. Yeah, and and we see it on a daily basis. You know, a core part, a core part of our proposition is onboarding historic assets and mm-hmm. and you know essentially cleaning that data and 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 providing reconciled portfolio performance across all of these assets. You know, we do see we see VCT holdings that are multiple years old, you know, 10, 15, 20 years old, have been through multiple corporate actions mm-hmm. and chefs yes. are out of date. You know, it, it, this is an ind- this is a part of the industry that we feel really does need cleaning up. We all come from listed equity backgrounds <laughs> and it just feels wrong. And, you know, by, by dematerializing these share certificates into custody, you move away from the problems with paper share certificates, paper dividend checks being sent out, you know, and inaccurate address data and all of that kind of thing. And you do absolutely unlock the secondary market there because the shares are held in custody. Um, they are available for sale in the secondary market. And we're seeing an increasing flow in that particular space ourselves. But to come back to your original question. So, yes, we're targeting an asset pool of 50 billion. I believe that with a commercial model that sells into advisors and and to their clients, you need around 400 to 500 million in AUA to break even. We as a business, we've got contracted assets of 250 million today. Okay. We have a pipeline to get to 500 based on you know assets coming onto the platform within the next six to 12 months so at that point you know we take one step forward and as a business and as a group of platforms in the industry being a profitable business and and our next target is one billion in assets which we we're pretty confident we can achieve within the next 12 to 24 months so that kind of suggests within your business you're seeing an acceleration because you you've been around for five or six years to get to 250 million and you're saying you can do an extra 150 million or so in the next sort of year or so that mm-hmm. suggests you really have sort of stepped up the the, the rate of uh, acquiring assets absolutely yes yeah i mean look historically we're growing 100% year on year this mm-hmm. year we expect to grow multiple hundreds and and really it's it's a combina- combination of during covid advisors looked at digital solutions to to improve the efficiency of their business you know there is a a, a continued 
increase in the importance of wider alternative assets for advisors for their client portfolios. You know, a lot of advisor firms, they're looking to grow assets under advice. They've sold all their pensions, ISAs, where do they go next? And and to, to try, try and increase assets. And, uh, you know, the answer is into tax efficient and the alternative mm-hmm. sector where they've probably not dabbled before. So we are seeing an increasing number of increasingly large, you know, national firms engaged with us as business. Clearly, they some of those are new to the space, but some of them have got significant historic assets. And yeah, we are accelerating. We've got good process, good technology to to onboard those assets more and more quickly. So um, we are very much in in growth phase. Yes. So I did say a few minutes ago we're going to come back to Cuba, which I think is important both for for a growth thing. Most people listening are probably aware that Cuba, the Cuba platform, went into administration last year. Do you want to give us your perspective on what happened there? Yes. Yeah, of course. It was a shame to see Cuba go under. You know, it, my opinion is that anybody that that works hard to try and improve efficiency and access to mm-hmm. this space should be credited for doing so. In terms of why Cuba didn't survive, you know, I believe that um, they they were too niche. I touched on this concept earlier of being broad and, and uh, you know, to get to scale, addressing an asset pool that's large enough. Now, you know, Cuba, for whatever reasons, were ultimately an access point for a curated set of EIS investment products and, and a, a, a small amount of business relief. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that um, they never quite got to achieve whole of market in that space or to broaden the product mix and as such they were targeting too smaller an asset pool long term to really make enough of a dent to 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 hit scale they also didn't onboard legacy portfolios and this is you know core to our model is working with advisor firms to take their historic assets that are mostly supported on spreadsheets and filing cabinets and mm-hmm. digitize all of those and, and and you know give them one environment to report on that that's not a service that that cuba did so i just think it it it, it kind of ran its course if that makes sense yeah no i i i definitely understand in that How, yeah I've, I've been involved with cuba since we came involved the market you know i i I, I feel a fondness for them because they actually gave me my first bit of research to do in this market. So I, I, I did have some fondness for them, but they were definitely focused on smaller managers uh, because the bigger managers seem to have this fear of disintermediation, which kind of kept them away from Cuba. And they never really seemed to grow beyond those sort of, sort of core you know, 20-odd products. One thing I did hear comments about was the cost of Cuba. How much do you think that was a factor in people not using the platform? I I don't have a strong view, Brian, if I'm mm-hmm. honest with you. I, yeah. I know that our revenue model differs. Our revenue model is, is a straight platform fee charged to the client on the assets in their portfolio. Mm-hmm. We don't charge um, transactional fees. Um, I know there was a, a, a something percent transaction charge that could be in mm-hmm. places rebated against the managers. I've not 
you know, through the process of having discussions with ex-Cuba advisors coming onto our platform, it's not been flagged as a as a an issue for them historically. I you know, I think, but it it's certainly not having that additional transaction charges is, is not something we've built into our model because we we believe our model sells where it sells, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And one of the reasons also we're raising Cuba is that you're it's kind of hot off the press, and one of the reasons we've taken a while to speak is you are doing something with the with the with the Cuba customers. So, do you want to tell us what you're doing? Yeah. So we we've reached agreement with um, the holding company that kind of took over servicing the Cuba clients mm-hmm. um, when they went into administration. We've reached agreement that um, Growth Invest would take over the ongoing servicing of their advisors and clients um, should they wish to opt in to do so. And so, yeah, we're we're in a process of, of having discussions with all of the, the Cuba advisors and, and their clients with the view to, to um, bringing their historic investment portfolios across to the Growth Invest platform, reporting on those ongoing um, and, you know, hopefully providing a a broader solution across the entire tax-efficient and alternative space for those advisor firms. Yeah. And we mentioned about scale earlier. Will this make a big difference to Growth Invest, a small difference? In terms of AUA, um, you know, assets, not hugely material, but, you know, still significant in our journey of growth, if that makes sense, will we'll get us a good step towards, um, you know, that um, four to 500 mark that we discussed. However, in, from a client perspective, there there are a large number of, Cuba had a large number of clients that have used them at some stage. Mm-hmm. So, and a much broader spread across uh, from, you know, smaller IFAs and, and wealth managers. Um, so it gives us Gives us as a business, should they come across, gives us very good diversification, and and you know it's a meaningful number of of new clients for us to service going forward. Yes. Yeah, and what sort of challenges will this bring for you? Because if you bring across a legacy platform, that automatically raises one or two questions about you know is there any challenge with custody? Is there any challenges sort of for systems perspective in terms of getting the data across? You know, dealing with managers. Some some of whom are kind of no longer in this market actively. What challenges are you seeing in bringing this across? Well, there's the obvious challenge, you know, new advisors, our platform and and the functionalities and so on. It's going to look and feel slightly different to Cuba, but uh-huh. um, you know, we we've we've bolstered the client services team internally. We brought um, you know an individual across from Cuba anyway that has relationships across the advisor bank there so we will provide training and and support in the same way we do for any new advisors that come onto the platform in terms of migrating across the assets it's not a huge job to the extent that whilst we will automate big chunks of the process it really these new advisors will just tie into our standard onboarding process so we will be engaging with the clients going to the product providers getting up-to-date reconciled data on those holdings and and um you know loading that to the platform so um so that side of things there's work to do but it's part of the day-to-day of onboarding assets for us as a business there are a couple of less 
relevant to growth invest but certainly you, you know woodside corporate services were the custodian for the cuba platform they are having discussions with the the, the relevant fund managers just to ensure that the asset custody is in the right place and that there's an ongoing solution there but either of those entities it should be fine to um, report into the growth invest platform going forward do you deal with multiple custodians already yeah, we as a business, we've got a multiple multi-custody model, you know, partly because we cover listed assets, um, unquoted assets. Um, so we have different custodians for that. But equally, we like the concept of diversification of custodians for um, all the right reasons. Yes. So one of the things that I was trying to figure out about Cuba failing was this, if this is a good or a bad thing for the market. I mean, you you talked about it being a shame that it's failing, which I thought was very diplomatic given actually in some ways they're a competitor to you. But I don't know if you see as, you know, platform's share is so small that they're growing the market and, and actually having a competitor doesn't really matter in that sense. But the, the, they were very small, there's probably one or two managers that was applying a different portion of business to, but it seems to me the impact on the market as a whole probably isn't that big. I would agree. And certainly the feedback, you know, I've obviously discussed this with multiple parties across the industry over recent weeks. You know, what they did was admirable, but I think by the time they went into administration, they didn't have that much of an impact on the market anyway. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, whilst it's never a good thing for a company to go into administration and it's never a good thing for advisors and their clients to be told that they can't access the market in the normal way, I don't think it's in a broad context that sends, you know, shockwaves through the industry. And, you know, is it a good thing? I hope that us doing this deal and bringing those advisors that were using the Cuba platform back into the marketplace and giving them a, a you know a solution that's broader across the, the entire tax industry we, we hope that will be a good thing we hope we can service them better in a broader way and we hope that they that will give them the tools and controls so that they can become more active right across the space so uh, so, so you don't see any negative uh, impact on sentiment towards platforms as a whole? Because I say, uh, I, I think if we, if, we, if we rewind a couple of years, we had three platforms that all felt kind of subscale, all didn't seem to quite have product market fit sorted out yet. And and now we've seen one of these gone. You know, Do, do you think there's any that affects sentiment towards platforms at all? It, it kind of should do in a normal situation, but my answer is no. I think, you know, by the time they went under, people were aware that they they were no longer in the race. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, f- from our perspective, you know, the, everybody that we speak to the industry is seeing the growth that we're experiencing. Uh-huh. So they're certainly not questioning, you know, the... the uh, the, the long-term sustainability of a or a number of platforms in the space. So looking forwards, how do you see the market for platforms developing in the not-too-distant future? Because I, I, can, I can see you're obviously on a growth trend. I can think of one obvious threat in the sense, which is if one of the larger IFA platforms in other areas moves into this space, that might be a challenge for you. How do you see... The sort of platform side of of the tax tax advantage market developing. 
where to start this we believe and are proving out that there is a clear demand so product market fit is is there there is a clear demand okay. right from from the nationals down to um the, the smaller firms now you know that needs to be borne out through processes of which which and if a platform is put in place but that there is a solution required by advisors in the market i also believe that in years to come whether that be one two three years that this asset class will be as easily accessible as main market listed assets uh-huh. you know that's very much our mission as a business you know the, the industry will get there because it's important enough and increasing in its importance that it has to so those are two core points you know we we want to be a real driver of that the main market platforms well there is definitely a clear requirement for an integrated solution between main market assets and tax efficient assets you know and so whether that going forward is is provided via you know integrations with main market platforms by con- consolidation between the main market platforms and 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 the tax efficient niche platforms uh-huh. remains to be seen but you know, you know the future in the future there there should be a seamless access to to the products in tax alongside main market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the one thing that surprises, continually surprises me about not just this market, but is the degree of sort of balkanization in terms of once a silo develops, it's very, it, it can feel very hard to stop that being a little silo and integrate things elsewhere. But, you know, so, so we've always got this ideal, but getting to it can sometimes be harder than we think. Yes, but yeah, but. You know, clearly, whether it operates as a completely separate silo and integrates to back offices in the same way that, you know, it, multiple main market platforms would, or whether and it integrates horizontally into the main market platform so that clients can move money out of pensions and move them into IHT products and things like that. You know, these are the things we're looking at. These are things that advisors want. And, you know, a number of the main market platforms have and are actively looking you know at at bringing an offering in this space but uh, you know it it takes time to build it's very nuanced and it's 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 very you know tricky in places at the moment um to make that work from a technology perspective i mean presumably if they did that you could see as you mentioned maybe vcts might be the the first target in the sense that from a systems perspective, they look a lot like investment companies. So they might be easier to do than jumping straight into EIS. So do you think there might be a segmentation of the market in terms of who's attacking which segments? Yeah, I think AIM, AIM IHT is already covered on the main market platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, w- what we are seeing is advisors that like to be able to access and manage those portfolios alongside their asset-backed IHT. So that's kind of where we bring value on that side. Um, VCTs, 100%, it's a huge, huge growing market. It's a massive growing segment for us as a business. Right now, you know, we've had it, <laughs> there is not a a whole of market um, from primary investment to secondary liquidity solution in the market like ours. 
Now, um, you know, I, I know that main market platforms have looked at it. There's a number of main market platforms that have some VCTs already, which you can buy into custody. And it, it most certainly should be an interesting asset class for them that looks and feels very much like the investment companies they already have. It's quite nuanced as an industry and rather more fiddly to administrate than than maybe you expect on day one. And, and we definitely know that there are, you know, main market entities that have tried to service the industry, realised how nuanced it is and open discussions with us around, around maybe partnering. So, um, but certainly in terms of siloing it, VCT and and AIM are, are the obvious choices for main market platforms, yes. That was my naive sort of perspective. So what I'd like to do now is move into our standard questions. As you're not a manager, we'll remove a couple, though I think we know what your most recent publicly announced investment is. So tell us about the time you failed and what did you learn from it? I think I may be quite boring on this one and just tie back to the discussion we had at the start of this interview. And, and you know, as a business, we we did we kind of failed to gain traction trying mm. to service direct EIS unquoted companies with the advisor market. We learned that pretty quickly. We we learned what our advisor clients did want and 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 delivered on that quickly and efficiently, if that makes sense. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, so a bit of a not the, there's probably more interesting answers, but but there you go. So the EIS, VCT, and, and I guess your case, business relief industry that we're working is is great in many ways, but it's far from perfect. What would you like to change about it? I think, again, something we've touched on a fair bit today, Brian, and, you know, focusing specifically on EIS and, and you know, um, when we can get this holy grail of, of standardised and, and improved returns data you know, and standardization around fees, I think that will sit much, much better with advisors and 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 their process to recommend the products. And I think it will give the, the market a real um, push that it needs. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think fees, I've got some perspective on. You've probably heard me speaking about them in the past. So I, I yes. think there's a degree of, because they're high, they try, so, some managers try and justify them by making them more detailed, which makes them more complex, which then just makes them even less understandable, which is kind of not really what we want. No, no, I hear you saying. Wider discussion. Yes. (laughs) So as listeners know, I'm an avid reader. Are there any books out there that you like and would recommend to us? There's a book that I'm reading at the moment, which... uh, not getting a huge amount of time to uh, to get through it, but it's it's rather interesting. It's it's called Factfulness, mm-hmm. and it's by Hans Rosling. Yes. Um, I don't. Have you read it, Brian? I have. I came across it. So he's famous for TED Talks, where he yes. created these dynamic graphics, which are you know he sort of revolutionised sort of data presentation, amongst other things. Yeah, yeah and. and- you know, from my side, I'm not sure. I don't subscribe to everything that they're putting across in the book, but it it is interesting that you know what you get from the book is is that um, maybe we should form opinions based on data and and facts. 
facts rather than you know the biases that we get through the media just the concept that there's a lot of stress driven through you know listening to what the media reports when actually you know it, it, yeah it's hugely biased and um and maybe if we looked at the facts and uh and looked at history i think the biggest thing i've taken out of it is you know we're not in that bad a place even though we've been through a, a pretty um tricky couple of years if that makes sense no absolutely i think there's a long-term perspective can really help you know sort of mitigate that sort of crisis perma crisis that the media tends to portray i mean certainly you look at the war in ukraine and and it's terrible but compared to other wars in the past it's not as terrible as you might think which is maybe not the message i want to give out but no no but yeah as i say and don't subscribe to everything in there but sometimes a, a you know a, a peppering of of factfulness can can sometimes uh yeah allay fears and and we've certainly been bombarded with lots of uh bad news and and you know worrying media content over the last couple of years as you'd expect yeah trying to keep a good perspective is is hard and i think he helps you with that so yeah no i i definitely like that so i will put a link to that in the show notes great stuff what do you wish you knew when you started with growth invest that you know now okay possibly not the answer that you're going to want to receive but not a huge amount in the con in the context of we have learned so many things on this journey mm-hmm. um you know um from day one you advisors are not keen and um, there's a small number of advisors that do direct eis products and so on and so forth we are constantly learning from different types of advisor firms so it, there's a there's a host of things that i've learned along the way what would I, we as a business, wish we knew at the start? Probably not much, Brian, because the journey of learning it has brought us to where we are today. Mm-hmm. And where we are today is we're in a market. We're in a market that's growing. There's an appetite for our products, and we have been around long enough to be able to demonstrate that we're sustainable in the long term. So, things that we've learned. If we'd have known them on day one, we probably would have come to market with with the perfect product too early. Mm-hmm. if that makes sense so yeah. actually grateful for the the learnings of the journey and and just trying to capital capitalize on where we are today well if you enjoyed the journey that's really important i think because yeah, we spent we spend more of a life on the journey than arriving so <laughs> yeah very fair so if anyone wanted to find out more about what you're doing at growth invest where should they go you can go to the website growthinvest.com um, or you can um, just drop an email into inquiries at growthinvest and um, yeah one of the team will be back to you um, at any st- uh, very soon um, if, if you want to speak to me directly just uh, put that in there and uh, I'm very happy to have a call and, and talk about what we do and how we might be able to help people. And I, and I should also add that Growth Invest every week send out what they call a market download, which is a list of links and news, which I find good reading and keep in terms of keeping me up to date in what's happening in the market. So I can I can definitely testify to that being a helpful thing. Yes, yeah, it, it, you know, there's a lot of work goes into that to to give every you know advisors that are very busy, you know, a weekly snapshot of where things are where things are particularly relevant in the tax season when when you know vcts and products are moving quite quickly so yeah just 
if anybody would like to be added to the distribution there, then again, just drop an email into inquiries at growthinvest.com and, and um, one of the team will add you to the list. Excellent. So thank you very much for coming on today, Dan. It's been great to get your last and yeah, hearing all about what, what you're doing with platforms. So thank you very much. Listen, Brian, it's been fantastic. Thanks very much for having me and uh, yeah, look forward to speaking soon. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.